Good morning. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 through 6, 10 through 16, 18 through 20, 31 through 34. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Moses heard the people from every family wailing at the entrance of, to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you, that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised an oath to their ancestors? Where can I get the meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have fa found favor in your eyes. And do, not let my do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord, Lord hold, heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it just for one day or two days or five, 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Now wind came out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Keroth Havath because there they buried the, buried the people who had craved other food, the word of the Lord. Have you ever found yourself saying the words, if only? If only I could get that certain special something in my life. If only I could find that certain special someone. If only I could have that certain special experience. If only you fill in the blank, then I would finally be happy. Have you ever said, if only, and then gotten what it was you thought would make you happy? only to find yourself unhappier than you were before? 
For instance, uh, Ronnie Cheng is a comedian who did a show called uh, Asian Comedian Destroys America. And he pretty much does. He basically takes a lot of well-deserved shots at American culture, especially our uh, overly consumeristic culture. He talks uh, about how we love to have stuff delivered to our home. Here's what he says. Amazon Prime every day. Send that stuff to my house every day. In America, never leave your house. Land of the free and land of never leaving your house. <laughs> now, Ronnie Cheng did this show in 2019. And I'm sure there's no way anybody could have possibly known just how ironically prophetic these words would prove to be. Because in 2019, we could all say, if only... I could have everything delivered and never leave my house. And yet a year later, we got what we thought we wanted, but instead of being a gift, it turned into an imprisonment. Have you ever said, if only, only to get what you thought would make you happy and find that it only makes you unhappier than you were before? It's called discontent. Discontent does not mean that you are unhappy because of something you don't have. It means you are deeply unhappy about something you actually do have. And it poisons pretty much everything else in your life and leads to all kinds of other maladies like bitterness, resentment, envy, emptiness, despair, depression, addiction, and all kinds of other things. And listen, it's important to say that sometimes, maybe a lot of times, we need counseling to help us deal with it, or maybe even medication. But even those things are tools that are meant to help us see and to address the deeper sickness, the deeper bitterness and unhappiness and emptiness of our lives. How do we do that? We're in a series on the book of Numbers. It's all about how God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and now he's leading them through the wilderness to a land of promise and hope. But I'll be honest with you, um, we are entering a section of the story that is sad and scary. But if we pay attention to the deeper sickness this passage we just read is showing us, then it will actually lead us out of discontent and into a greater experience of promise and hope for us. How? There's three things we need, and this passage shows them to us. We need a comprehension of our loss a confrontation with ourselves, and lastly, a consecration to the Lord. We need a comprehension of our loss, a confrontation with ourselves, and a consecration to the Lord. So first, a comprehension of our loss. At the very end of the chapter, right before this, the Israelites begin their journey in the wilderness. But no sooner do they hit the road than they start grumbling. And one of the main complaints is they want to go back to Egypt. Why? Well, um, notice what they say. It says, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Now, there are two big things um, that are important to notice here. First, notice there's an if only in their lives. It says, if only we had meat. Um, now, is there anything wrong with meat? No. Is there something wrong with food? No, of course not. We need food to live. In fact, this isn't the first time the Israelites have asked for food. Back in Exodus 16, when they first came out of Egypt, they were starving and they cried out for food, and God gave them quail. He gave them this, um, 
bread-like substance from heaven. It's called manna. They asked for food. God gave them food. But here the problem is not that they don't have any food. They've been eating manna for like a year now. The problem is it's not the right kind of food. Discontent does not mean that you're unhappy about something you don't have. It's when you're deeply unhappy about something you actually do have, and it's afflicting the Israelites right now. But second, notice they, they, um, they talk about the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Now, this bumfuzzles me, and it should be confusing and perplexing to you too, because think about this with me. What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves. How in the world can they talk about free fish? And it's like, okay, yeah, they beat us, they whipped us, they made us work in the hot sun all day, they chained us up at night, but oh, the fish was free. (laughs) Friends, here's one of the main things I really want us to grab hold of this morning. What's the real problem here? The big problem here is that a failure to comprehend their loss is poisoning their lives. Let me say that again. A failure to comprehend their loss is poisoning their lives. What does that mean? Well, last week we were talking about the things that form us as human beings. Your first and most formative experience happened in the family you grew up in, along with your other experiences as a child and as an adolescent. So even though we all had different experiences growing up, there's no way you can live in this world without experiencing loss, without experiencing wounds and hurts, and and for every single one of us, at least some level of trauma in your lives. And one of the scary things is it's oftentimes very difficult to see it for what it is. And so we end up looking at our losses, and what we do is we say, oh, you know, my family wasn't that bad. In fact, things were quite good. Not only, you know, we do that as a country also, don't we? We look at the, at the history of our country and we say, oh, things weren't that bad. Not only do that we do that as a country, we do it as individuals. It's a form of denial. And um, it's also a, a way, you know, look, there's something um, inside of us, oftentimes a very fierce loyalty to our loved ones that prevents us from ever wanting to say anything bad about them. And yet what happens is this, if anybody ever comes along and says, you know, suggests that maybe there was some dysfunction or some failure or some abuse, whether in our country or in our family of origin, everything inside of us rises up to protect our loved ones. Yet I would suggest that what's really going on is it's more a desire to protect ourselves from the shame and the profound loss that we would feel if we were ever to name the reality of what happened. And so what we do is we normalize what happened. We minimize our loss. And if we do that, don't you see what it's doing to the Israelites? The brokenness that they experienced in Egypt is perpetuating itself in their lives, even though they're free. That a failure to comprehend their loss is poisoning their lives. Or we could say it like this, they're no longer living in Egypt, but Egypt is still living in them. You are no longer living in the family system you grew up in, but your family system and the loss that you experienced there is still living in you. And that brokenness that we experience, we we were talking about this last week, we all have a tendency to inflict our brokenness on other people around us. 
If we don't learn to comprehend our loss, that means to name and feel and grieve our losses, then that brokenness will continue to repeat itself in our lives. But that's not the only danger we see here. Um, There's another danger, and we actually see it with Moses. When the people start complaining to him, he starts complaining to God. He says this, it says, Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Literally, it's, it says, why are you doing evil to me? You know, um, God called Moses to lead the Israelites. Now, there's about two to three million of them, which would be hard under even the best of circumstances. But now the people are on the brink of open rebellion. And as a leader, that's hard. Um, it's so hard, in fact, that Moses says this, He's blaming God. He says, if this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me and do not let me face my own ruin. Moses is facing tremendous loss here. He's facing a a relational loss, loss of control, loss of reputation. Maybe if things continue going the way they are, maybe even the loss of his own life. And yet, instead of denying and minimizing his loss, which is what the Israelites were doing, Moses is getting stuck in his loss. He's wallowing in his loss, and it's making him bitter. His failure to really see and address the loss in his life is preventing him from really dealing with it in a healthy way. And as a result, he's becoming resentful and bitter. You know, whenever I think about how the pain and brokenness in our lives can turn us bitter, I always think about Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. It's not a good movie. But (laughs) there is one scene in there where Anakin Skywalker, he thinks his mother is dead, but then he finds out, oh no, actually she's alive, but she was captured by Tusken Raiders. And so he goes off looking for her and and he finds her, but it's too late. She dies in his arms. And at that moment, you can see the hatred and the bitterness start to come over his face. This is the moment when he turns to the dark side of the force. This is the moment when Anakin Skywalker starts to become Darth Vader. And even though I only saw the movie once, 20 years ago, again, not a good movie, still, whenever I think about how the pain of our, bit, uh, of our loss can turn us bitter, I always think about this image. This is a powerful visual image of what happens to us when we get stuck in the loss of our lives. Do you see the danger here? If, if we deny our loss, if we minimize our loss, that brokenness continues to repeat itself in our lives. But if we get stuck in our loss and wallow in it, it turns us bitter. Unless we learn how to comprehend our loss, to name it, feel it, and grieve it, then we will be trapped in brokenness and bitterness. How do we move forward? Well, that leads to the next thing we need here. First, we need a comprehension of our loss, but secondly, we need a uh, confrontation with ourselves. Remember, discontent is not when you're unhappy with something you don't have. It's when you're deeply unhappy with something you actually do have in your life. What does Israel have in their lives right now that they didn't have before? God. They have God, and yet they don't want God. Which sounds a little harsh, but you know, look at what they say. It, um, look what happens. They, they're crying out for food, and here's what it says. 
um, God says, now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat. So it looks like he's giving them what they want, but why does he say this? Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. God is saying, you're rejecting me, which sounds a little harsh. I mean, the Israelites would probably say, oh, no, 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 God. It's not that we don't want you. It's just that we do want food. We want you to provide for us. Now, listen, hasn't God been providing for them this whole time? I mean, every single day they've been eating this manna, this bread from heaven. God is saying, Israel, in rejecting what I've given to you, you are rejecting me. Friends, if you've been with us throughout the series so far, you know that um, in the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers, we've been seeing this. It's basically a description of the layout of the Israelites' camp. Remember that? Here's a diagram. This is the, the camp of the Israelites. At the very center of the camp is the tabernacle. That's the presence of God. And everything else in the camp, everything else in their lives, is formed around the presence of God. It's a very powerful visual image for the reality that all of our lives are always going to be formed around some center. And then unless God is at the center of our lives, if we form our lives around some center other than God, then we will be deformed. It's still a formation, but it's a spiritual deformation. And so God comes into the Israelites' camp and he's confronting them. He's saying, Israel, watch out. Something else is at the center of your lives, and unless you make me the center of your life, then you are going to be trapped in brokenness and bitterness. And likewise for us, there may be all kinds of things in your camp, but something is always going to be at the center. Your heart, there's only room in your heart for, for one if only. Remember, Israel is broken and bitter here, and the reason is because something other than God is there if only. And so God is coming to them and confronting them and saying, Israel, unless you make me your if only, then you are going to remain trapped in brokenness and bitterness. And so for us, not only does there need to be a comprehension of our loss, you know, the roots of our brokenness and bitterness are in those things, there also needs to be a confrontation with the false centers in our life. And so, um, many of you are in community groups right now. You um, know, right now we're having our community groups read a book by Robert Mulholland called Invitation to a Journey. This book is about spiritual formation. He defines spiritual formation as the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That means that, that spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ. Now, this week's chapter, if you're reading the book... Uh, is talking about what it means to be formed in the image of Christ, what it means to be formed around a new center. So Mulholland says this, he says, the process of being formed in the image of Christ takes place primarily at the points of our unlikeness to Christ's image. It's a great phrase, the points of our unlikeness. That means God doesn't primarily work in our lives in the places where we already look like Jesus, but the places where we don't look like Jesus. And he goes on to say this, through some channel, the Spirit of God may probe some area in which we are not formed in the image of Christ. In other words, God may use something. Maybe it's something you read in the Bible or something you experience in worship or maybe something you experience with a, a person, whether a Christian or maybe even somebody who's not a Christian. But something, God uses that to start 
probing you and pushing you and confronting you in an area of your life where you are not like Jesus. That is a confrontation. And that's exactly what we see God doing here with the Israelites. He's confronting them. And so Robert Mulholland goes on to say this. That probing will probably always be confrontational and it will always be a call to come out of our brokenness into the wholeness of Christ. So God will confront us in places where we are not like Jesus and he will call us out of our brokenness and into wholeness in God. But then Mulholland says this, but it will also be a costly call because that brokenness is who we are. We may no longer be living in Egypt, but Egypt is still living in us. Those false centers have been a part of our life for so long that it's become who we are. Friends, where are you broken? Where are you bitter? Do you sense God calling you out of that brokenness and bitterness, confronting you in those places of unlikeness and calling you into wholeness in Christ? It's hard to do that. It's hard to respond to that. Everything inside of us wants to resist that. But unless we allow God to actually confront us in those places of our life, uh, uh, life where we are unlike Christ, then we will always remain trapped in brokenness and bitterness. One of the most poignant illustrations of this to me is from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Narnia, if you know the place, is a land of great beauty and wonder, and it's ruled by the lion Aslan. In the last book, everyone goes through a stable door and enters into a land of even greater beauty and wonder than the original Narnia. But there's a group of dwarfs who their hearts are so bitter and resistant to Aslan that they can't see Aslan, nor can they see the, the beauty of this new world they're in. Instead, as far as they can see, they're in a nasty, stinky, dirty, dark hole. They are completely blind to the glory of the world all around them. They keep saying the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. We're not going to let anybody take us in. But there's a little girl named Lucy who has compassion on them. She says, please, Aslan, isn't there something you can do to help them? And Aslan, who, by the way, is really Jesus, Aslan says, dearest, let me show you both what I can and what I cannot do. And he makes a lavish feast appear in front of the dwarfs but all they can see is, they just think it's, it's a pile of rotting garbage. And they start fighting with each other over it. They're completely blind to the reality of Aslan and to the beauty of the world around them. They just keep repeating the same thing and over and over again. We haven't let anyone take us in. And so Aslan turns to Lucy and he says this. He says, you see, they will not let us help them. Their prison is only in their own minds, and yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Friends, we all have areas of brokenness and bitterness in our lives. Points of unlikeness to Jesus. And the roots of that are in the loss that we've experienced in our lives. And we all need a confrontation with the false centers, a confrontation with the ways that we have made something other than God the center of our lives. And unless we do that, we're going to remain trapped in brokenness and bitterness. Do you sense God calling you out of brokenness and into wholeness in God? And especially if you're exploring faith this morning, do you ever feel trapped in brokenness, bitterness, emptiness? 
meaninglessness, exhaustion, addiction, loneliness, whatever it might be. God is calling you out of that. How do we follow him forward? Well, that leads to our last point. We need a comprehension of our loss. Second, we need a confrontation with ourselves. But lastly, we need a consecration to the Lord. What does this mean? Well, like I said at the beginning, this is a sad story. This is a really scary story. This story does not end well. At the very end, we read it, God sends a powerful wind that blows a huge migration of quail to the Israelites, and they go out and they start gathering it up and gorging themselves on it. But before they can even swallow the meat, God sends a plague and many of them get sick and die. And they call the place where they bury them Kibroth Hata'ava, which means graves of craving. Now, this is one of those places in the Bible where it's easy to see why people say, you know what, the New Testament shows us a God of love and grace, but the Old Testament shows us a God of judgment and wrath. It'd be easy to read this passage and say, you see, this is proof. The God of the Old Testament, he's not a God of grace. He's a God of judgment and wrath. We could say that, but we would be wrong. Not a God of grace? Have we, can we read the story again? Friends, remember, when, when Israel was in Egypt, when they were slaves, did God say, okay, Israel, if you worship me and obey me and serve me, then I will rescue you from slavery? No. Before they ever worshiped God or served him or obeyed him, before any of that, God got to work in their lives and he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. That's grace. Or when they get out into the wilderness and they're starving, does God say, okay, now, Israel, if you will worship, serve, and obey me, then I will feed you? No. Before they worship, serve, or obey God, God feeds them. It's grace. Or um, look at Moses. You know, um, in the middle of that big speech he has, remember he's complaining to God and he says, did I conceive these people and give birth to them? God, why have you called me to carry this people like a burden, to carry them like a nursing mother? Man, Moses has a short memory. All the way back in Exodus 19, when God brings Israel out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai and then Moses goes up on the mountain and, and God says, tell the people of Israel you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That phrase, I bore you, it means literally to carry a burden. It's the exact words that Moses is using about himself. But it's a phrase that God uses over and over and over and over again in the Bible to describe what he did for Israel. He carried them out of Egypt. Friends, do you see the irony Moses says this. Moses says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. It's like God would say, Moses, of course it's too heavy for you. That's why I did it for you. Friends, once you learn to read the Bible with an eye for grace, you see it on every single page of the Bible. And with that in sight, now that means we can come back to this story about the quail and the graves of craving and we can ask the question, <laughs> what's going on here? In verse 18, notice God says um, to Moses, he says, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. Now this word consecrate 
It's also a word that would mean um, sanctify. It's the same word in Hebrew. Uh, it's a word that means set yourself apart for the holy purposes of God. Consecrate means prepare yourself to meet with God. But here, it's kind of weird because God is telling them that they're going to die. It sounds like God is saying, prepare yourselves to choke to death. What is going on with that? Well, remember, spiritual formation begins with confrontation at the points of our unlikeness to Christ. And the roots of that is in our loss. The roots, our brokenness and bitterness is, is in our loss. But spiritual formation also means that not only does there need to be a confrontation of the points of our unlikeness to Christ, God does that, but then he gives us the freedom to respond to that. And the choice is ours. It's a sacred moment. God says, consecrate yourselves. In other words, give your yes to God. Give your yes to what God wants to do in your life. But the choice is yours. God will not force you to respond to him. And so he's saying to the Israelites, look, I've given you my grace. It's, the choice is yours. You can either stay here in the camp and rest in my grace, or you can go outside of the camp, away from my presence, and you can satisfy your cravings in something else. But the choice is yours. God pours out his grace, but he will not force you to respond or to receive his grace. That means that at the end of the day, if we don't put our craving in the grave, our craving will put us in the grave. The choice is yours. Will you say yes to what God wants to do in your life? Friends, that is exactly what Robert Mulholland is saying. At the very end of the chapter, many of you will be discussing in your groups this week. Remember, he says spiritual formation begins with God confronting us. There's a confrontation at the points of our unlikeness to Jesus. But then he says this, the second dynamic in spiritual formation is consecration. And I love that he used the word in the very chapter that we're studying this week when we're actually looking at this passage. The second dynamic in spiritual formation is consecration. We must give God permission to do the work God wants to do with us right there, right in those points of unlikeness to Jesus, because transformation will not be forced upon us. Or we could say it like this. The big question is not, is God a God of grace? He is. The real question is, will you respond to his grace. How do we do that? Listen, the Israelites saw God's grace in action. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw God come down on Mount Sinai. They saw God send manna from heaven. The Israelites saw the grace of God in action, but we can see something not even they could see but which this passage is actually pointing us to. Remember, Moses says this. He says, I cannot carry these people by myself. The burden is too heavy. If this is how you are going to treat me, God, please kill me and do not let me face my own ruin. Moses is saying, I'd rather die than bear this burden. He can't carry the people. He can't save them. And so as the people are going outside of the camp to satisfy their cravings in something other than God. They're moving away from the center, away from the presence of God. Friends, that is a very powerful image of what we do all the time. We're always going outside of the camp, away from the presence of God, in order to satisfy our cravings in something else. We're always 
forming our lives around some other center. We're always um, setting our hearts on some other if only and forming our lives around some other center. And we do that all the time. And yet, when we do that, do you see what's happening? We are distancing ourselves from God. We're saying no to the grace of God. And we would rather die than bear the burden of what it would take for us to confront the false centers in our life, to confront the brokenness and the bitterness in our life, and find wholeness and renewal back in the presence of God. And there is no human power that can bear the burden of what it would take to carry us out of our brokenness back into the wholeness of God. No merely human power. But Moses said, I'd rather die than bear this burden. Friends, on the cross, the true Moses, the better than Moses said, I'd rather die in order to bear this burden. Moses said, if only I could be rid of the burden of this people. But on the cross, Jesus said, if only I could rid the people of their burden. Friends, coming out of our brokenness and our bitterness, um, confronting the false centers in our lives, and facing the ruin and the loss of our own story. To do that, to us, it feels like what Moses said here. I'd rather die than face that kind of ruin. It feels like a death, and it is, but it's a good death because it's a consecration, a sacred yes to the life and wholeness that we can find in God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, what would it look like for you to start learning how to comprehend the loss in your life. If this is a new idea to you, let me please encourage you sincerely to find a good counselor who knows Jesus, who can help you in that journey. And if you are wondering, you know, if you need help or guidance in that, please get in touch with us. We would love to help you in that journey. But going further, what would it look like for you to to start confronting your own false centers, to confront those places in your life of unlikeness to Jesus. And lastly, what would it be like for you to, to consecrate yourselves, to, to give that sacred yes that lies at the heart of your soul, to give it to God and to say yes to what He wants to do in your life? The only way we can do all of that is by seeing that Jesus has already done all of it for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus made you His if only so that you could make Him your if only. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that even though in the hardness and the bitterness and the brokenness and the blindness of our hearts, we cry out, if only, and we feel like you've left us alone, like you've abandoned us and that you're not for us. Father, we thank you that um, the opposite is actually the case, that you are a God who is always for us, always there, always pursuing us, always chasing us, always confronting us and calling us out of our brokenness and back into wholeness in yourself, but you will not force that upon us. You give us the freedom to respond. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help all of us, whether we've been following you for decades or whether we are just beginning to explore what it might be like to follow Jesus. Would you give us help this morning to comprehend the the deeper levels of our loss, to confront the false centers in our life, and to consecrate ourselves, to give you our holy, sacred yes, and say yes to what you want to do in our lives day after day after day, that we might be called out of brokenness and back into the life and the wholeness that you offer us through Jesus. For we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.